verses 12 through 36. And before we get to our text, I was thinking about evil villains this week and that have evil plans, and that's a big part of literature and movies, maybe none more elaborate than the villains who James Bond continues to encounter. And not only those villains have elaborate plans for getting their revenge on the world, but they have almost comedically elaborate plans to rid themselves of 007, putting Bond into a situation that will surely end in a horrific death, only to leave him alone <laughs> to his demise or with some very incompetent henchman and allow him to escape. These schemes are so comedic that countless TV shows and movies have parodied how ridiculous they are. From the evil Dr. Doofenshmirtz of Phineas and Ferb to Dr. Evil of Austin Powers, all their evil plans are in effect really not that evil. We laugh at the ridiculousness of sharks with laser beams on their head or a slowly ticking time bomb that has the fail-safe key hanging on the wall nearby that just has to be gotten to shut the whole thing down. Evil plans in literature and movies can be very funny, but this morning we encounter an even evil plan that is anything but funny. There are points of irony in this, in this story for sure, but it is not a laughing matter. It's not a laughing matter because someone's life is held in the balance, but even more, it's not a laughing matter because the story is a reflection for many whose lives have been broken by evil plotted against them, and it should cause us to mourn with them about how our lives can be seemingly derailed by the evil of others plotted against them. The other reason it's not a laughing matter is that this story is like an MRI for our hearts. It shows us that given the right circumstances, we too can succumb to evil plans. Because the reality is if a particular sin is there in our thought lives, in our hearts, whether anger, lust, greed, malice, a desire for power, whatever it might be, all it can take is the right circumstances for that sin to bear its bitter fruit. So let's read Genesis 3, 12, 37, 12 through 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, that's Jacob again, don't forget, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will 
say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Then Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and, can't, and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite tra traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that we are told is made flesh in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, through your word, Lord, that you would help us to see and hear all that you have for us this day. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began our sermon series titled The Gospel According to Joseph. And we said that this is not a story that we will be unpacking over the next several weeks of God rewarding good morals or good character as it is often kind of told. It's not a story for us to emulate in how we live within the structure of our families. There is so much dysfunction that we would not want to emulate this in our lives. It's a story instead of God's faithfulness, of His grace, of His mercy. Even when the people in the story aren't faithful, don't display grace and have no mercy. And from this dysfunctional family, God promised that He would choose all 12 of Jacob's sons to make them into a harmonious, worshiping, serving community called the nation of Israel. 
We're reminded that families in the Bible have just as many issues or problems as ours today, often many more or at least more that are revealed. And the families we encounter in the Bible are deeply flawed, just as the individuals are deeply flawed. But God works for their good and his glory, just as he offers us today. We saw in our text that our God of promise and restoration provides hope for anyone, even dysfunctional families. And we looked at the dysfunction in Joseph and Jacob and Joseph and the brothers' lives and how God will redeem them. We pick up on the storyline from last week. Joseph, remember, had gone to serve and work under his brothers while they were shepherding the flocks. He brings back a bad report about them, which we said in the Hebrew is actually understood to be a malicious report. And his father rewards him with a magnificent robe, a, a royal robe. He then has these dreams of ruling over his family. And today we see that the brothers had gone out shepherding, but who wasn't with them? Joseph. No longer working with them. Presumably, he's back home in his fancy robe, maybe with his feet up on the couch, drinking a beer. I don't know what he's doing. While his brothers are out in the fields, Man, talk about adding fuel to the fire of the dysfunction and hate within this family. We see in our text something that we need to wrestle with in our own lives, that many of us maybe even have questions about this. And that is that God is at work in the midst of evil. God is at work in the midst of evil, evil done to us and evil done by us. We can see the hand of God's providence at work, even in the midst of evil. As we saw in the story of Esther, providence is God's activity throughout history in providing for the needs of humanity. Providence is how God cares for the universe and everyone in it. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in chapter 5, part 1. God is the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his, in, his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And then in part three of chapter five, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So this doctrine of divine providence is the reference to that preservation, care, and governance which God ex exercises over all things that He has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. You see, God is at work in Joseph's story, in our story, in the story of humanity to accomplish the ends of which we were all created for. And we'll see that in our story throughout. In God's providence, Joseph goes seeking his brothers. 
sent by his father to see if they are well, literally, if they have shalom. He cannot find them, but doesn't give up. He keeps looking for them, and he's directed to where they have gone, and he continues his mission to seek and to find his brothers. He is seeking their shalom. And when asked what he was doing, Joseph's response is literally, my brothers I'm seeking, which makes the family relationship paramount to what he is doing, to his thinking. It reinforces his mission. And it also shows us how evil his brother's transgression is against him. So on the contrary to seeking Joseph's shalom, the brothers seek his demise. They conspire against him. They conspire to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest, remember the one who slept with his father's wives, with one of his father's wives, intercedes and gets them to change their plan. The text tells us his intent was to just put him or just put his brothers off for a bit and then rescue Joseph from this pit or a, what is a cistern. So they strip him of his robe and they throw him into a cistern. And these cisterns were hollowed out of limestone bedrock or were dug into the ground and then lined with plaster that we were to store water from uh, the rains. And they provided water for humans and livestock throughout most of the dry months. And when they were empty, guess what they were good to use for? Keeping prisoners in. And so his brothers use one for Joseph. They sit down to eat while Joseph wallows in the pit, just highlighting the contempt that they have for Joseph. They look up and see a caravan of traders coming, and the evil plan is only slightly changed at this point. Just now, they'll be paid for it. These traders are identified as Ishmaelites, which is quite interesting in the course of the story that we find ourselves in. You'll remember that Ishmael was the son of Abraham that Abraham thought would be his heir, that, but God had promised another heir in Isaac. And so these Ishmaelites remind us of a sibling struggle well before the one that we are in today. It goes back to the early days, earliest days of this family with their father, great-grandfather Abraham. We should also remember that Midian is among the rejected sons of Abraham born to Keturah, who were expelled to the east. So it's these Ishmaelites and Midianites. There's discussion on whether this is one and the same and just different names for them or two uh, like peoples traveling together in a caravan. Not that it matters all that much. Though some have tried to say this is a, you know, this is, uh, shows and proves that, you know, this is, you know, different stories being brought together, and so uh, we can't quite, quite trust it because it uh, contradicts itself. But we should remember that Midian was among those sons that were sent off to the east. And although we don't have any account in, in the story of Abraham uh, and any rivalry between Midian and, and Isaac, 
we do have knowledge going forward 400 years where the Midianites were instrumental in opposing the Israelites in the wilderness many, many years later. And so the brothers sell their brother into slavery and take the robe and make it look like he was mauled by a wild animal. And notice they don't actually lie to their father, Jacob. They simply produce the robe and let his imagination run wild. Do you recognize this? Of course he does. Is this your son's robe? Of of course it is. And there is rich irony in this part of the story, Jacob being deceived by a garment and a dead goat, which is exactly what he used to deceive his father many years before, a garment and a dead goat. We saw last week that as Joseph receives this, that Joseph has this deep love for, or Jacob has this deep love for Joseph. And we talked about how uh, it likely could be because of his mother Rachel being his favored wife, or it could be um, for other various reasons. But as Joseph receive, or as Jacob receives Joseph's robe, his imagination runs wild in what has happened to his son. And his mourning is quite extensive and deep, as it would be for any son. But as we talked about last week, there, there may be a theological component to Jacob's love for Joseph. Likely there was. That Jacob saw Joseph as the child through whom God's promise of the messianic seed would be fulfilled. Remember, he was Jacob's son of old age, just like Isaac was Abraham's and Sarah's son of old age. And now with Joseph's apparent death, how would that promise be fulfilled? Remember, at the end of last week, we heard that while Jacob rebuked Joseph for telling the family his dreams, the text also says that Jacob kept the saying in mind. It's very similar to the comment in the Gospel of Luke about the Virgin Mary, pondering these things in her heart. The dream that Jacob had stored up in his heart Joseph's dream of the sun and the moon and the stars coming and bowing down to him was now a dream that could not be fulfilled. The dream was gone. The hope that Jacob had for his family was gone. That's why Joseph's loss is not merely one of a loss of a child, which would be so detrimental, so hard. It's also the loss in Jacob's mind of the promise of God, the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to himself, Jacob. as a dream that couldn't be fulfilled That's why it wasn't just 
one of life's great storms for Jacob. It was the greatest storm that he could not weather. There was nothing that could console him. Nothing that would bring back the hope that had been lost. So what does this story have to do with us? In the story, we see that God's sovereign providence is at work in complex and profound ways, just as it is in our own lives. It will take many, many years and many more twists and turns in the story before the working out of these events would become even somewhat clear in the lives of the individuals that we encounter in this story. Yet at the end of the story, faith and hope are vindicated and doubt and despair are vanquished. Our lives function very much the same. It may not be until the end that faith and hope is vindicated, that doubt and despair is vanquished. And yet that is the promise that God gives us. But God certainly doesn't promise an easy life of health and wealth for His followers. It is God's loving providence that is at work even in these most painful seasons of life. God is not fickle and mean. He doesn't bring painful circumstances into our lives just for kicks. He will use these seasons to glorify Himself and to grow us in ways which cannot be accomplished unless we pass through the storm. Joseph can't save his people, his family, or the people of the world from his couch at home. And guess what? Jacob, in his idolatrous love for Joseph, would never have allowed it to happen. It's the same way for our own painful personal experiences. But it's also true for our sin as well. God is also sovereign over our sin. We have many sinful thoughts in our hearts which we never act upon simply because there is no opportunity to do so. Our hearts may be restrained from outward sin by the presence of other people, by the fear of being caught, by social taboos, by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is God's grace to us and it's, our, it's God's grace to others. If we lived in a world where we all acted on every sinful idea or thought in our hearts, this life would truly be a living hell. I have one friend who often will say when people lament rightly how awful and evil our world is, 
his response is often, yes, it is. And if God was not at work, guess how much more evil and awful it would be. God graciously restrains our hearts from outward sin in many different areas of our lives. But at other times, the Lord removes those restraints and allows us to be in a situation where we have both the motive and the opportunity to go ahead and sin. And our hearts are allowed to go where they want. In those circumstances, the Lord doesn't create our sin. He is never the author of our sinful deeds. Our sinful deeds flow from our hearts and that truly want to sin. Yet the Lord is still sovereign over our sin through circumstances and shaping influences that bring us to the point where the seed of that particular sin in our hearts grows to the point where it's acted upon. And the Lord sometimes chooses to show us the sad truth about ourselves precisely by allowing us to live out the sin in our hearts. He allows that sin to grow and for us to experience it so that we will truly understand our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right as Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church who passed away this summer would always say, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. But you are more deeply and dearly loved in Christ than you could ever imagine hope. Even in the depth of sin that we do uncover in our hearts because of God allowing it to be shown and experienced doesn't even reach the depth of what the possibility of that sin is in our lives. At the end of the story, I know you're not supposed to necessarily jump to the end of the story, But at the end of the story, when Jacob has died and Joseph's brothers think that that Joseph will now get his revenge, instead, Joseph expresses wisdom and forgiveness in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, as for you, he doesn't let them off the hook, as for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph calls it for what it was. You meant evil against me. You wanted me dead. You did whatever you could to get back at me for whatever you felt I had done or what you believed about your father's love for me against you. It was your evil against me. But God meant it for good. And it goes on. We often remember that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. But Joseph goes on just a little bit further, right? Because he realizes it wasn't just about good for himself. He goes on and says, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What we mean for evil, God can and does use it for good. 
There's a flip side to what Joseph says as well that we also need to be aware of. What God meant for good, we use for all kinds of evil. It goes both ways. These characters in this story are our spiritual ancestors. And while we may sit here and be like, man, what evil SOBs. We're no better than they are. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God daily. And if we are not guilty of the same specific outward sins, it is simply because God has providentially kept us from committing them. Not because our hearts have never longed for them. It's not just murderers or slave traders who have broken God's law and deserve to face the consequences. We've all done the same thing and we continue to follow the same patterns of death each and every day. Yet the amazing part of the stories that God is writing throughout history is that we, like Joseph and his brothers, as evil as the plans were that they had and executed, as much of a brat that Joseph was, as much of evil that we might just secretly have in our own hearts and minds, Joseph and his brothers, like you and me, can be included in this family, in this people that God is forming and has formed. Has called, he has called to himself the people of God. This is because God himself, because of God himself, not because of anything that we have done. You see, we also see in this text not only our sin, not only the, the evil that others can do towards us, but we also see in it that the Lord is the one who ultimately seeks our shalom, our full goodness, our full peace, our full understanding of what it means to live as God intended. And we see that in our text in a way that foreshadows someone much greater and better than Joseph. You see, is just as Joseph goes seeking his brothers and doesn't give up and continues to search for them to seek their welfare. As we read that text, we should be reminded or be interested to look further to another favored son, a son whom his father sent to find his brothers and sisters to seek their welfare, the beloved son of the father, Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save the lost. And those he came to, his own people, his own brothers and sisters, sought to harm him. Just as the parable that Jesus told of the vineyard reminds us, the son was killed by those who came, he came to seek their welfare. Now Joseph was, in, was spared physical death through being sold into slavery. But in his father's eyes, he was dead. Killed by those he went to find. 
But Jesus, the Son of God, wasn't spared. He was nailed to the cross for our shalom, for our salvation, for our welfare. See, in our text, what we ultimately see is what we mean for evil, God means it for good. He means it for our good, and he means it for the good of the world. What we mean for evil, God means for good, and he has shown that in his son, through his son, Jesus Christ. He knew what sending his son out to find us would produce. Jacob somehow didn't have a clue, but God the Father did. He knew that sending his beloved son to his brothers and sisters would produce his death. And yet, he came. Here I am. He came to seek and to save. He came to find his brothers and sisters who are far off. What we mean for evil, God means it for good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of this story of Joseph and his brothers. Lord God, that even in the midst of, of evil, Lord, you are at work. And not only at work, but Lord, but you use, you bring about good. Lord, we pray that as we meditate on this, this day and in the days to come, Lord God, that you would remind us that each one of us, but by the grace of God, is capable of all kind of sin, all kinds of evil. And Lord, you came after those like Joseph's brothers, like us, who are capable of all kinds of evil to seek and to save us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and remind us of the great grace and mercy of your gospel, of your Son, of you, Father, and Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by standing and singing, How Firm a Foundation.